Hey everyone, this is Jeff Smith, the cartoonist of Bone, Rassel, Shazam the Monster Society of Evil, and Tukey. I listen to Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast because Brad and Lisa always sound like they're having so much fun, no matter who they're talking to or what comics they're discussing. This couple loves comics. They love engaging with comics. Congratulations on five years of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Program. And here's the five more, and I hope you're having just as much fun, and I know you will be. Love you guys. This is Joshua Williamson. Uh, congratulations to Comic Book Counseling on an awesome five years. I always appreciate how much insight you both put into uh, these interviews and the work you do uh, talking about comics. So thank you very much, and uh, congratulations again. Hi, I'm Fel Hound. I'm the creator of Commander Rao. And I just want to say a huge congrats to Brad and Lisa on the fifth anniversary of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. Thank you for always being so supportive of comics, of the creators, and for giving those special fictional someones in our lives some much-needed therapy. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. In this episode, we are celebrating our five-year podcast anniversary, which is what gift? Um. It goes paper... Cotton, leather, uh, fruit and or flowers oh. is four years, uh-huh. and five years is all the thoughts you want. We've got Schema on our counseling couch using Grant Morrison's new X-Men from Marvel Comics. You seem like you don't get it. Um, because, you know, like uh, Scott Summers is cheating on Jean Grey with his thoughts. I got it, I I'm got it. I'm saying you can have all the thoughts you want. But what's the real five-year anniversary thing? Is it wood? It is wood. Yeah! <laughs> I'm going to refrain from making a filthy joke because it's a special day. And because I made the filthy joke, but it was too filthy <laughs> and we edited it out. Was it too filthy or was it just too obvious? Clearly, we've been doing this for five years because you're taking every opportunity, Lisa, to take me down a peg. A wooden peg because it's our five-year <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> Which is not at all a chubby. Nope. We launched the podcast on December 1st, 2018. Our first episode was on the Dark Phoenix Saga. Our first four counseling sessions were with Scott and Jean. Lisa, does it feel like a long time ago? Huh. Like, is five years a long time? I, I don't I don't know. Like, I am still super excited about comic book couples counseling. Like, it's a new idea I just had. Like, that's definitely the case. Someone recently asked me if we were running out of ideas. And I said, we're only going to run out of ideas when we stop having comic book couples to cover. Right. And it feels like we've barely scratched the surface regarding even the iconic comic book couples. And we've also broadened the idea of a couple because we've done siblings with the Ninja Turtles. We did Loki with himself. Uh, and I, we've covered friendships. I feel like there's still a lot of room with parental relationships and stuff. All comics are actually just relationship books. That's what I've discovered. A few days ago, I was thinking about how much time has passed since 2018. I was thinking, it feels like yesterday. It feels like yesterday. But then I went ahead and I listened to 
our fourth episode, which was the new X-Men episode. Thank you for taking that diamond bullet. And it quickly became apparent that it was an episode that was recorded pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was a much more innocent time, 2018. There was still joy in our voices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say, listening to that episode, I feel like we were not as comfortable as we are today on mm. the microphone. I feel like you hear a lot more performance in that early episode. And also I think uh, we've grown so much as a couple, as readers, as people. And in revisiting the new X-Men run this week, my takeaways from that series are vastly different than they were in 2018. So I'm really looking forward to talking about Scott and Emma and that menage a trois that we discussed in 2018 when we were looking at it through the Scott and Jean relationship. It's so funny because I could not listen to the episode. It was just straight up too cringy for me. Our editing skills have also enhanced <laughs> since 2018. Oh my gosh, so many pauses, so many breath sounds. Oh gosh. When you described to me what my take was in that original episode, I had in my head just believed that I thought all of the exact same thoughts I think today, five years ago. Like yeah. like I in superimposed my my current day self on my old self. And I'm I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like shocked. Oh yeah? Yeah, I, like I, like the fact that I was like, I didn't think this also five years ago, it's wild. I, I Like when I was listening to the episode, I was kind of disappointed. Oh no! I was like, past Brad, be better. Aww. <laughs> uh, but past Brad, you do get better. Well, you were so resistant to the whole self-help idea in the first place. And I think in those first couple of episodes, you're like, I'm gonna be the skeptic. And, and there doesn't need to be any self-help everybody just needs to communicate better i won't deny that but actually like my disappointment is in how savage and brutal i am towards scott summers mm. in that 2018 episode and that 2018 episode on new x-men also spawned our first bad review yeah that's right and the the person was so mad after listening to our four episodes they they like the way the review starts is like hey it's i i understand that uh it, it's uh, challenging to launch a podcast and it's great that you're putting yourselves out there but your take on Scott and Jean is atrocious. How dare you call Scott a garbage person? Right. And I, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with every critique that's in that first bad review that we got in 2018, but I also see where they're coming from now in a way that I didn't then. Does that make sense? I think that we've gone a long way in building our vocabulary when it comes to expressing empathy mm. like we don't need to differentiate ourselves so much like you identified so closely with scott summers he yes. was your guy when yes. you were a kid that's why we launched with scott and gene in 2018 is because that was my couple as a teenager like i invested so much of my romantic ideals into them so when grant morrison finally shattered that relationship with introducing the Emma element, I was mad. And in 2018, I was still mad. And I think that you were just trying to like separate yourself from the young person that you once were. Mm. I think you were disappointed that you didn't recognize Scott's toxic traits sooner. I think I was trying to sell 
my disappointment that I felt in my youth or when I first read New X-Men. So here was our opportunity to talk about New X-Men for the first time on the podcast, and I had to sell the idea of that hurt. Mm. And I don't have that need anymore in 2023. Oh, so you were like kind of um, regurgitating some like personal history there? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yes. And processing some maybe like stale emotions? Uh, yes, 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 I yes. feel like as a podcast, we've definitely become more rooted in the presence, talking about the characters on the couch from where they're at, from where we're at. Well, I'm sure you also remember that early on, I found it very challenging to just discuss the topic at mm. hand. I always wanted to bring in what the creators were dealing with, right. what editorial wanted to achieve. I always wanted to talk outside the storyline, and you kept pulling me back into the story to focus our conversation solely through the story. Yeah, because one of my principles is when you're reading a story, like everything you need to know about the story should be in the story. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. like bringing up editorial stuff or bringing up stuff about the creators is like beside the point to me. Right, right, right. We treat the fiction as a reality. That's the goal. Like right. Because one of my principles is to not reject the premise. So like by bringing in some kind of, well, the reason that this happened is because editorial wanted there to be more conflict in the relationship and therefore they did this to me. They right. broke up the relationship that I love. Right. And I'm like, editorial's not in the story. Brad's not in the story. And um, the premise of the story is that Scott is hurting and he behaves badly. And he's on the couch and Gene is on the couch. Editorial is not on the couch. Exactly. And we're on the couch. Ultimately, it's what this couple, this fictional couple, can teach us about us. Also from that review, which I shouldn't dwell on, but of course every criticism like gets lodged in my back tooth and I just like taste it forever. But one of their criticisms was that we only talked about the characters from the arcs that we read, that we didn't think of Scott from the totality of a person. And I still kind of stand by only bringing the arcs and only talking about the characters from the perspective of the arcs that we're talking about. Because when you're going into a counseling session, you cannot give that person the totality of your life. When you're going through a crisis, you lose all perspective. So when we're talking about Scott, when he is cheating on his wife and comforting himself and his inadequacies with Emma, that is his whole world. He can't also say, but I've been a hero all of these other times. You know what I mean? I, I, I do know what you mean and I agree. And also just the reality is, we cannot keep the totality of the X-Men continuity in our heads. Yes. So when we're doing these sessions, we can only really rely on the storylines that we have chosen yeah. or that our listeners have chosen for us. Yeah, and and part of that is like my fault. I do not like to make a conclusion about a character that is like unsupported by the evidence I have like on hand. Um, 
But like, I don't know. I, I stand by it. Mostly, Lisa, I'm super proud that we're still doing comic book couples counseling. Yeah. And it's more popular than it ever has been right now. Isn't that fun? People actually listen. Hi, guys. Our listeners have allowed us to meet some of our all-time favorite creators, the creators who have steered these relationships. Yeah. The podcast has allowed us to travel to more cons than we've ever gone to before. And it's built this beautiful community around us that we rely on when we're away from the podcast. Yeah. So to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Comic Book Couples Counseling, not only are we returning to one of the original storylines that we covered back in 2018, but we wanted to invite past comic book couples counseling guests, some of those creators, to offer a few congratulations toward the podcast, which is really cool and crazy to think about. Not something we could not have imagined five years ago. You'll be hearing from them throughout this podcast episode. You've already heard Jeff Smith, Joshua Williamson, and Fellhound. And we've commissioned a milestone fifth anniversary poster from one of our good friends, Karen Charm. Every time we've commissioned something from Karen, they have always knocked it out of the ballpark, knocked our socks off. All the knocks. All of the knocks. But I feel like this time, we really truly threw a curveball, <laughs> not asking for a parody of an existing cover. This time, what did you tell them? I just said to Karen, we want a celebratory poster. You know, something that just says, like, happy anniversary. And it doesn't have to be based on anything. And this is what they delivered. And you can go to comicbookcouplescounseling.com and see the poster on our site. You can see it on all of our socials. You're going to want to pinch and zoom yes. and get into this image because it is full of Easter eggs that are near and dear to my heart. Like, clearly... They meditated on who we are as people, who we are as a podcast, and really, I mean, it touches. So, like, it touches like the my heart. image is a birthday party for us. We're in the center of the poster, and somebody with red gloves is presenting us a birthday cake with, you know, a lit candle in the shape of the number five. And then behind us are all the couples that we have put into session over these last five years, plus some added guests, maybe some hopeful guests from Karen. All of my faves are there. Right to Brad's right hand is Don Greenwood and Norrin Rad. And Don Greenwood is beside herself with joy, <laughs> She's as she it. should be. And then over my shoulder is Miyamoto Usagi and the Lady Tomoe. In the back is like Thanos and death. But I also love, oh, and then of course Swampy and Abby. Talking about that couple on the podcast, like literally changed me as a person, like deepened my understanding of myself and the world. But also if you look up in the, the back right hand corner, there is the monkeys, yeah. which which I love. And there are monkeys comics and we're going to cover them on this podcast, whether you like it or not. I love that they're hanging out with Rogue and Gambit and Thanos and Death. Some of my favorites are, you know, uh, Alicia and Ben and Ben is bawling his eyes yeah. out. Because they're because their love is true. Uh, Marco and Alana look really sad to be at our party because, <laughs> you know, things happened with those two. I don't want to spoil Saga in our fifth anniversary episode. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, and then this is the one where it's like, okay, Karen really, really nailed the assignment because we have 
Superman and Lois Lane and Superman has a stern expression on his face and he's raised his fist in a shaking motion. And that's because longtime listeners know that we've wanted and we've teased covering Lois and Clark on the podcast for or five years. They actually came up in our Grant Morrison new X-Men conversation really? <laughs> in 2018, and we refused to cover them. We're pleasure delaying our coverage of Lois and Clark, and Clark looks really peeved about that on the post. And it kind of makes me want to delay it even longer. <laughs> and, Is that sick? And we have, uh, you know, in their best Hellfire Gala looks, Gene, Scott, Emma, and Logan all hanging together. Uh, I mean, it's it's a phenomenal poster. We're going to treasure this forever. It's currently hanging above our podcast table yeah. in the Love Nest. We actually printed a bunch of posters, not a bunch, a handful of posters, and we've been selling them on th through our socials, and we have nine left. Yeah. So the first nine listeners of this episode to email us, CBCC Podcast, and that, 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 that do that, they will get... A copy. We're selling it for $15 plus shipping. Yeah, you can own a little piece of CBCC history, and we'll even sign it if you want. And we won't sign it if you don't want. When I asked one of our listeners if they wanted us to personalize the poster they had picked up, they said, uh, actually, no, because I'm going to be giving this to my kids. I'm Aww. gifting my entire collection to my kids. And I was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> and then I just started thinking about those kids and the idea that they're going to in that massive collection of stuff, there will be a comic book couples counseling poster. Will they be happy to have it? I don't know. I imagine <laughs> that immediately being conmaried out of the collection. <laughs> They're like, um, maybe, maybe we can use this to pack some boxes or something. Or this poster is like the first big collectible that you'll need to have once we really blow up and become cultural icons. <laughs> oh man, uh, let's shoot for the moon, right? That's the difference, Lisa, from you, the third child, and me, the only child. The moon is possible. We are so excited that you are here to celebrate five years with us. And this party is going to go all the way through the episode, even as Scott and Emma are sitting tensely and awkwardly in our <laughs> waiting room. Maybe I'll, I'll go out there and I'll give them some champagne or something. This is Chris. And Laura Somney. Congratulations, Brad and Lisa, on five years of comic book couples counseling. Thank you for all the positivity and enthusiasm you bring to comics. Here's to many, many, many more years. Hello, this is Christian Ward, comic book artist and writer supreme. You might know me from titles such as Batman and the City of Madness and Bloodstained Teeth. I did both of those and they were both championed by my favorite podcast comic book couples counseling they had me on as a guest and now i listen every week why well because i love them and so i'm here today to wish them a happy fifth birthday you're older than my youngest daughter can you wipe your own bum yet you should be able to she can anyway Enjoy the cake, the birthday cake, blow out the candles, five of them for each of your years. Happy birthday, comic book counseling couples. Mix it, put it the right way about. You, you get it out. Bye, love you. Love you, bye. Hey guys, it's Turtle Writer Tom Waltz here with a big shout out to comic book 
Couples Counseling. Five years. Five-year anniversary. That's amazing. What a milestone. Uh, we hope we're with you guys uh, for five more years. You've been tremendously supportive of all the things we do with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, including The Last Ronin, and we have a lot more work to do, and we really hope to share it through your awesome podcast, and hope to see you again soon on the road. Take care. Happy five-year anniversary. I had so much fun revisiting Morrison's new X-Men this past week. It has been five years since I've read these comics, and it was... Not a surprise, but it was a delight to rediscover my love of these books. Big same. I just love Grant Morrison's perspective on the X-Men and all comic book characters that they tackle because I feel like they find the cracks, like the personality cracks in the individuals and kind of tease those broken places. And, that's, and I love the melodrama of it. When we first discussed doing a fifth anniversary episode, we considered going back to the Dark Phoenix saga mm -hmm. and revisiting Scott and Jean and having another conversation about Scott and Jean. But I'm so thankful to friends like Dallas from mm -hmm. the Comics Collective urging us to finally do a schema series of episodes. And that is what we are going to do. In January, we are going to have four full episodes devoted to schema, Scott and Emma. But it starts here today by revisiting New X-Men, the series that we covered in 2018, but this time through the lens of Scott and Emma. And just by doing that, by reframing the narrative through their relationship, I had a totally different emotional takeaway. Of course, of course, because whomever we have on the couch, we are obligated to make them work. And I feel like before we saw Emma as kind of like a hurdle where it's like, no, Emma is a person with needs and wants and desires, and they also don't get a fair shake. I wouldn't say that we have an obligation to make them work, but our obligation is to look through this story from their point mm -hmm. of view. Mm -hmm. we, like our empathy refocuses on them. Yes. So just like we did in 2018, we are looking at a certain chunk of Morrison's new X-Men run, which are issues 127 through 141, published between June 2002 and May 2003. So basically a year of the comic. And last time when we talked about these issues, we did not credit all the artists what? who brought this book to life. So we need to make amends and fix that. So there's a bunch of people who brought this book to life, including obviously Grant Morrison as the writer, but we have pencilers John Paul Leone, Igor Cordy, Phil Jimenez, Kieran Grant, and Frank Quietly. The inkers are Bill Sienkiewicz, Igor Cordy, Andy Lanning, Norm Rapmund, Tim Townsend, and Avalon Studios. The colorists are Hi-Fi Design, Dave McCraig, and Chris Chuckery. The letters are RS and Comicraft Seda, Jimmy Wes and Albert, and VC's Chris Elopoulos. As we discuss Scott and Emma in these issues, we're going to be skipping over a lot of plot. But just to give you a general idea of what's going on in this section of Morrison's new X-Men, 
which is basically collected in the volume two trade paperback. Here's the plot synopsis taken off the back. 16 million mutants dead, and that was just the beginning. In one bold stroke, writer Grant Morrison propelled the X-Men into the 21st century, masterminding a challenging new direction for Marvel's mutant heroes that began with the destruction of Genosha and never let up. Regarded as the most innovative thinker of the current comic book renaissance, Morrison proceeded to turn the mutant hero genre on its ear. Gone were the gaudy spandex costumes replaced by slick black leather and an attitude to match. Now their entire Eisner Award-nominated run on New X-Men is collected across three titanic trade paperbacks. Now the other essential element of our counseling session episodes are our love expert. Neither Lisa nor I are doctors. Nope. Professionals. The nope. only thing that we're experts of is loving each other. Uh, so we often seek an expert outside of comics to help us discuss these characters. And with Scott and Jean, we went to Gary Chapman and the Five Love Languages, and we thought with this episode we would return to that concept and reconsider uh, Gary Chapman's deal. Not only do we have no expertise, we've discovered over the course of this podcast that no expertise is needed to write <laughs> a hit relationship self-help guide. Prime example, Gary Chapman <laughs> and the five love languages. I like the idea of going back to the same storyline using the same set of tools now that our skill level has kind of gone up. And I also like returning to Gary Chapman because it's another opportunity for me to underscore and apologize for the profound hypocrite that I am. <laughs> you listeners know that for the past five years, the concept of the five love languages has been integral to our podcast. We mention it literally every episode as part of our outro, and we often bring them up in various couple sessions. What I don't bring up often enough is that The Five Love Languages is based on junk science and the contents of Gary Chapman's book are problematic to the point of alarming. So I love The Five Love Languages and I think that Gary Chapman is a villain. I can hold both thoughts in my head and kind of be okay with it. What can I say? I contain multitudes. First, we need to quickly recap what the five love languages are. The broad concept is that every person is raised in an environment that teaches them how to express and receive love, making up the individual's love language. When that person then goes to start a romantic relationship with a person from a different environment, that person may express and receive love in a different language, and that can cause strife in a relationship. So Brad. Yes. Pop quiz. Oh boy. Can you name oh, no. off the dome the five love <laughs> no, languages? I think I can. I think I can do this one. Uh, quality time, physical touch. What's your love language? Words of affirmation. Yes. Um, oh man. Gifts. Yes. Have I said physical touch? Yeah, that you said that second. <laughs> well, you know, let's say it again because it's a good one. And the last one is acts of service. You did acts really of good. Service. <laughs> acts of service. If you're curious about what you or your loved one's love language is, there are so many quizzes online, but just like a mental step outside of your relationship 
and just like making observations, you can see clearly what your primary love language might be. It's the thing that you seek most from others and the thing that you do the most to express love to other people. Another key concept from the five love languages that we've really glommed onto is the idea of the love tank. A person whose love tank is full and they've been receiving their love language a lot is more content and happier and more generous with love. A person whose love tank is empty is discontent, unhappy and selfish with love. And it's a partner's job to make sure that their loved one's love tank is filled with the premium of their partner's preferred love language. Though the evidence on the existence and effectiveness of the five love languages is inconclusive, I personally have anecdotally found that considering love languages and the love tank has enriched my life and enriched our relationship. Like, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love the vocabulary of the five love languages. Yes. And it has been helpful in discussing where we are any given day. You know, like how full is your love tank, you know? Uh, I, you know, Lisa, I could use some words of affirmation right now. Yes. You know? uh, I, I have found it helpful. I think it's just good to meditate on love and loving. I just think it's like a, a good thing to do, to have top of mind, am I showing love right now? I also feel like it's broadened my horizon on what I receive as love. Mm. Where someone does something nice for me, I go, oh my goodness, that's an act of service, that's love. Yeah, I think the element of the five love languages that's really important is recognizing how you feel loved is not necessarily how your partner feels loved. And it's important to go like, well, am I giving her what I would want? Or am I giving her what she would want? Mm. Also, like the idea of like, I'm crabby right now. Why am I crabby? Oh, my love tank is low. Like or I need. You need a nap. Yeah, or you need a nap. That's also true. <laughs> now the ugly side of the love languages. If you want a more complete picture of why I consider Gary Chapman, the creator of the love languages, a shady individual, you can go back to those first four episodes. For the sake of brevity, I'll just keep to the problems that I had with some of the conclusions in the book itself. First, the book insists that it can make a romantic relationship between any two people work, as long as they are opposite genders. Doesn't matter which two people you are, as long as you take the quiz, follow the book, and fill each other's love tanks, you'll have a successful romantic relationship. It doesn't matter if you're attracted to each other, doesn't matter if you've dated, or anything. Just follow the book and bada bing bada boom. Second, the book insists that it can make a relationship work even if one of the partners doesn't know that they're being love-languaged or refuses to participate in making the relationship better. In one of the quote-unquote real-life cases in the book, a woman is being verbally and emotionally abused by her husband whose love language is physical touch. Because of the abuse, she is no longer sexually attracted to her husband, but Chapman instructs her to lie back and take it to save their dysfunctional relationship. And that, and he says that it works and that is messed up. On their own, the five love languages has become so huge, it has entered the zeitgeist and people talk about the love languages in the way that they speak about like spirit animals where it's like completely independent of the origin of the thing. And in the case of love languages, I really think that that is for the best. 
I think that Gary Chapman came up with a really good idea with the five love languages, but the book also contains some really toxic concepts as well. So we do what we do best. We pick and choose and we keep what we like and we throw away the trash. Five years ago, Lisa, what were the love languages that we assigned to Scott Summers and Jean Grey? Scott Summers is an acts of service and Jean Grey has actually a dual love language of quality time and physical touch. And in the beginning of their relationship, they had a lot more intimacy to speak to each other in their various love languages. But when Jean got the Phoenix Force and she became so tremendously powerful, Scott felt like he couldn't do acts of service for her anymore because she didn't need anything from him. She could kind of provide everything for herself. And because her love language was different, she didn't really understand why Scott was beginning to feel so alienated. And so the last time we read this particular run, my interpretation was that Emma was able to manipulate Scott through his love languages by making him feel more needed. I'm curious to see if our interpretations of their love languages change over the course of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, as we look at the relationship of not Scott and Jean, but now Scott and Emma. Before we get into the discussion, though, and bring Scott and Emma out of the waiting room and into session, we need to do some... Referrals! Sponsored by Omnibus, a sponsorship that we definitely did not have five years ago and one that we appreciate very much so today. Now, for those that don't know... Omnibus is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes, and omnibuses all day and date. Just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digital. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next new favorite book. They feature top-tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today. And as of this week, they added IDW Publishing to their service. So go and get your turtles. In the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we have our referrals segment. The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comic books. And you can go to Omnibus on any browser. You don't just need the iPad app. If you've got a browser, you have access to Omnibus and you can start shopping right now. I love my pick, but I feel like I didn't really like fulfill the brief. Like now as we redo what, what we do for Omnibus. So how about you go first oh. <laughs> and then I'll do my pick. Um, well, like we did when Omnibus and Archie teamed up, we went out of our way to highlight some really rad Archie comics. Since IDW has finally come to Omnibus, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite comics from that publisher. Okay. And it relates to New X-Men, definitely. Um, I think if you focus in on the New X-Men storyline centered around Genosha, 
and the devastation, the aftermath of that apocalyptic event and how our characters are trying to survive it and make sense of it and rationalize it. So that's the theme that I'm zeroing in on. And with that in mind, we also got a big movie release this week, Godzilla Minus One. And we haven't seen that movie yet, but we desperately want to. We better hurry up because I think (laughs) it leaves on the 7th of December. Uh, I need to see it in a theater. So we got to get to a theater real quick. Um, So yeah, okay. So with those two things, like living in my head or those three things because IDW I had to pick Godzilla half century war from cartoonist James Stoko. Yes. Um that is one of my all-time favorite comic books. It's it's probably my favorite Godzilla story period and I've seen every single Godzilla movie. And I realize that sounds like a hyperbolic statement, but I'm willing to stand by it. And I do not think you'll challenge me if you read Half Century War. It takes place over 50 years, hence the title. Uh, Lieutenant Oda Murakami is in Japan when Godzilla first makes landfall in 1954. And then the comic proceeds to follow his life every time. 10 years like mm. it, it, it you know each issue is about a decade of his life and we see what Godzilla is up to and we see his relationship with the terror that is Godzilla and how that changes and evolves and it follows you know like the various interpretations of Godzilla that we've had in the film so you know the original Godzilla is this very devastating heartfelt heartbreaking dramatic story but as we get more sequels we get some sillier adventures and some wackier creatures and all of that stuff is represented in half century war but like grant morrison does in their batman incorporated storyline james stokoe makes all the various vibes of godzilla work in one narrative it's such a colossal feat and I, I like I, every time I find somebody to put this book in their hands, I'm excited. And the opportunity now to recommend it as a referral with Omnibus is uh, too tantalizing to pass up. And this is a hefty story for only $9.99, a deal and a steal. Mm-hmm. And James Stokoe's art is like a beauty to behold. It's yeah. just art you want to get lost in. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Next level cartooning happening. Uh, so that is my referral. Lisa, you've had some time to think about it. Have you revised your referral and are you ready to go? While you were talking, I was having a hard time listening because I was like, is there a (laughs) way (laughs) that this could be more connected? Um, But I was thinking when I was choosing my omnibus recommendation, I was thinking about what I fantasized about when we started our podcast five years ago. I loved the idea of people picking up the issues and reading alongside us as mm. we do these couple sessions. Sure. That's why I always insist of, we have to say what we're reading next in the episode because there might be that person. Right. I decided to go through Omnibus and find a book of a couple where if you just started listening to the podcast recently, you can go back in time and read along with us the way that I had imagined. So it doesn't necessarily 
relate to new X-Men, no matter how hard I try. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't necessarily relate to IDW, because this is an image comic. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But it is the couple that we have covered the absolute Uh, most on the podcast. It is Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' Saga. Sure. The entire saga of Saga is available on Omnibus. And we have dived into Marco and Alana twice now. And I'm sure when Saga wraps up, ultimately, we're going to go in for a third helping Uh, of their relationship. Yeah, yeah. Like, we have covered the entirety of Marco and Alana's relationship in Saga. But we know that relationships (laughs) never end. Like, again, I don't want to... I love how we've come close to spoiling Saga twice. I spoiled nothing. (laughs) You were the one who was like, I have nothing planned to say. Let me give it a go. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is a relationship, though, that means a lot to Brad and Lisa and a lot to comic book couples counseling. It was the second relationship that we covered on the podcast five years ago. And it, and it's a relationship that really challenged what I loved, what I love about romances and comics, Mm -hmm. because I hate when we spend all of this effort to get a couple together Mm -hmm. and then we just, just to find reasons to break them up. Uh uh And so uh I had a lot of highs and lows with Marco and Alana's relationship and I have been rewarded many times over for sticking with them. And as you'll hear in those ancient episodes, I gave up once. There was a point in time where I said, no more saga for me. I prefer joy. Yeah. And if you go back and listen to our new X-Men episode from five years ago, you talk about it in that episode. Oh, really? In anticipation of covering Marco and Alana after Scott and Jean. Well, there you go. Oh, man. So more more early episodes for you, episodes that I will not even go back and listen to because they are so cringy. (laughs) And we won't even include links to them in the show notes. If you want to hear those, you got to do your homework. Oh, really? How come no no links? Because I don't want to do it. I want them them to work for those early cringy episodes. Okay. Re... Are we done? Yeah. Referrals. Comic book couples counseling. It's Daniel Warren Johnson here with a sinus infection telling you happy anniversary. (coughs) You're all the best. Thanks so much for doing what you do. Okay. Goodbye. Hey, Lisa and Brad. Francois Vigneault calling in from snowy Quebec to wish y'all a happy five years. Bonne fête. Hey, Brad and Lisa. It's uh, Jared from Jared Talks Comics here. Just wanted to say happy five-year anniversary to you guys. You're the best comic book podcast there ever has been and ever will be. And listening over the last few years has been such a consistent joy for me. And I'm really thankful for you guys for you know, helping me get started with everything. So, um, you know, here's to however many more years you guys want to do. Keep up the good work, and I'm so excited to see what's coming up. Okay, it's finally time to bring Scott and Emma into session. We got to pull them out of the waiting room. We got to take those glasses of champagne away from them. (laughs) We got to turn on that little fuzz machine that we put outside the door so people can't snoop and listen in on their session. It's they're on the couch. Now let's discuss their relationship. It's schema time. I think for their comfort, they should be, we should lower the lights, take all of the furniture out of the room, just set out a couple of lawn chairs because that's how Emma does her sessions. Apparently, according to issue 128, which we will get to. 
Um, for the sake of like going full circle with the podcast, we say that we're covering issues 127 through 140 something. 141. But there are entire issues where Scott does hardly anything. Emma doesn't show up at all. But I think it should be noted that Scott Summers' love language is acts of service. So if he is feeling useless, if he's feeling on the sidelines where he's helping no one and no one is helping him, that is going to cause his love tank to drain and Scott to spiral. And we do get a lot of Jean in the earlier parts of this arc. And we learned that, you know, her connection to the Phoenix is increasing. She's becoming more powerful. She is leveling up beyond Scott. She's always been beyond right. Scott power wise, but she's returning to that, like, you know, that, that godly like status. And her, one of her love languages is quality time. And she's spending a ton of quality time with Xavier. And I'm not speaking like romantically, but I'm speaking in terms of just someone fulfilling your love tank and, and keeping you satisfied. She's getting her needs met elsewhere. So she is not experiencing that same amount of like love drain. So as this arc begins, Jean and Scott are feeling pretty far apart. So when we get to issue 128 and we get these magnificent two pages, the final two pages of the issue, the first one being an eight panel grid of Scott talking to someone entering a dark room, sitting on one of these lawn chair things and expressing his frustrations to an unseen face until we get that page turn. And it is like a horror movie page turn with Emma slouched in the other chair and the way that Igor Cordy illustrates mm -hmm. her. I mean, she is the monster. It is like a dun, 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 oh no. And when I was rereading this, this is a moment where it was easy to connect to that emotional experience that I had in 2018, the emotional experience that I had when I first read this series. But this scene no longer traps me in this moment. Like you, if you open yourself up to the story and to the relationship dynamics that are actually on display in this series, there's something more here than just like evil Emma manipulating Scott. I think that Emma's intentions are malicious. And, and earlier on in the series, if you go back and you read the first volume, she practically states it. Initially, she is here to mess things up. But she does ultimately lose the thread and lose herself to being in love with Scott. And we don't yet know what her love language is. And it's hard to read because she's hiding her true self in order to be manipulative. I think one of the challenges of this session is going to be nailing Emma down to get to the root of what opened her up to there, to being in love with Scott. There's a lot of masking going on right. in this relationship. And you know what Scott is trying to do in, in this page as he is unburdening himself to Emma is he thinks he's unmasking himself to a person that he that he's comfortable doing that with because he's not comfortable unmasking himself with Jean. Right. On this 8 panel page 
Scott lays out his thesis statement of why he thinks his relationship with Gene is not working. And these arguments come up repeatedly. So I would like to go panel by panel on this page and talk about everything that Scott is saying. And I think we'll find that, unbeknownst to himself, Emma isn't the only person masking. You know how sometimes when we get into an argument, what we present is not our true feelings, but instead we build a case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, one of us is annoyed and then we load up a bunch of grievances and then we just rat-a-tat through those grievances. Yeah, he's writing a story. Right, right. So in the first panel, we just see Emma's feet and an empty chair. So you get the sense that like Emma's like laying in wait. <laughs> yes. And then in the second panel... Scott walks in as if it's like spontaneous. Why does he walk in though? Why, you know, he says he wants to talk to somebody about Jeannie. I I just want to talk to somebody. He doesn't want to just talk to somebody. He goes to Emma. Why doesn't he go to Hank? Why doesn't he go to Logan? Why doesn't he go to Professor X? We'll see later that all of those people give Scott unsolicited advice all of the time. And they're all very pro Scott and Jean. I Mm. think... He has kind of the vague excuse that Emma is a trained therapist. We've seen it in previous volumes through her teaching. She's had some counseling experience, but I think he wants someone who might give him permission to break it off with Gene. I also feel like there's something more gross happening. I feel like, and and it's in this page when he starts talking about the way that Gene used to dress and how she dresses Mm. now. And, you know, he's speaking to Emma, who has a very provocative fashion sense. Uh, You know, he, like, I think he perceives Emma a certain way. And that is, it's him fishing to be a part of that certain way. Like he, you know what I'm saying? Like You're making an excellent point. Also, they have some overlapping talents. They both have psychic powers. They both- Gene and Emma. Gene and Emma. So I think that he's trying to get like a redo. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like he, 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 what he's saying in this, what he says in this page here is, you know, he wants he wants to do naughty things mm. and he can't do naughty things with Gene. But you're naughty, Gene. I can do <laughs> naughty things with you, Emma, the naughty Gene. It's not just that it's naughty, but it's what he interprets the naughty to mean. Mm. So I want to go back okay. to going panel okay. by okay. panel. Okay. Okay. So third panel is essentially him saying like, We've been through so much as a couple. We've been through death and we've been through horror and we've always been clinging to this shining, unshakable thing, which is their love before she got phoenixed. But then he goes on to say, but it's phony. We were faking this teenage unconditional love in the face of unstoppable change, chaos and change. Now he'll say this again, And he'll make these arguments in the same order. So the following panel is the corset thing, which we're going to bounce back to. But the panel is, I love Jean. I love her more than my own life. So he always says, our love is not unconditional. I will always love Jean. Uh, So I think he's implying, I think he's implying that it's not conditional 
on his end. I think that he thinks that it's conditional on Jean's end. Yeah. And I, I think that he feels like she's going to reject him. And I also think we have to remember that their love is a teenage love. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I've never been in a relationship that has lasted from my teenage years to my adult years. Right. And that has to be a heck of a journey. We have some friends who have, who have traveled that journey and I just I can't imagine how it's possible, but here's Scott trying to do it with Jean and the doubts have seeped in. Right, right. The doubts. Like, like that, he that, is that was feeling, teenage love. That he, was a child's love. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. He's saying, like, it's a frivolous love. Like it's You can't a, trust it. Exactly. Now, going back to the corset panel, he says, our lives seem so straight and safe now. I mean, she ran around in a corset for everyone, <laughs> but with me, it's sensible shoes and roll necks. So she didn't do it willingly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's like, for sure. That was like, that was some Sebastian Shaw, Black Queen stuff. Yeah, but like what he's saying is she put out an effort. She puts in effort for everyone else. But when she's with me, she will not do me that favor, right? She will not service me in that way. Uh -huh. So it's less about the corset and more about the effort to me. Then in the following panel, like the, in the, I'm going out of order. I said we were going to go in order and then I didn't. In the seventh panel, he says, I can do brave things. I'm saving the world all of the time, but I can't speak to my wife, right? And I think like, I can't speak to my wife because I'm afraid she's going to be, she's going to reject me. And so I think part of what's going on with Emma is He's creating the conditions of his rejection. He's like, what is it not going to hurt me to be rejected for? I mean, this situation is like, um, you, you don't have the courage to break it up. So you create a bunch of events to break it up. Right, right. You, right. Because he take doesn't the want to break away. it up. He doesn't want to break it up. He wants to know. be in love. He wants to be together. Like, but where he is right now, his fear of reject he he values his fear of rejection over his love of Jean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where Scott is now is a, obviously a very dark place for a variety of reasons. You know, before the Grant Morrison New X Men storyline, Scott was possessed by Apocalypse, right. and did some terrible things in that condition, and he has a lot of shame circling that event too. And part of that shame is that he kind of loved it. Yeah. He kind of yeah. loved being possessed. He found it really exciting. He also... It was his Black Queen moment. He also discovered... His Phoenix moment. Yeah. He also discovered some things about himself that he is ashamed of, right? So those are the... That's part of why he's fearing rejection from Jean. Um, but I like Emma's response before we see her. And she says... You've been keeping rather a lot bottled up, haven't you? So, like, to me, when you have a grievance that has been bottled up, it goes back to the building a case idea. Like, he's been planning what he would say to Jean if he had the cojones to say something to Jean. So, like, to me, it's going to be our job to see through his argument to get to what he is actually feeling. Now, Emma is also creating some emotional distance 
but she does it in a way that just skeeves me right out. So you've already spoken about her posture. The page turn. The page turn. Her posture is very provocative. She is tipping her pelvis forward in a way that is like, hey, it's right here. You know what I mean? And she has the Frank quietly designed costume which exposes like a flesh X uh, on her chest. Yeah, yeah. But she refers to herself Torso, her whole torso. Her whore, her whole... Her whore torso. Her whore torso. (laughs) Oh, Freud, get out of here. But she calls herself, talking about Freud, she calls herself Auntie Emma, and that (laughs) skeeves me out so bad. And it is not the the last time she says it. Yeah, yeah. But again... I like, and this is what we're going to go to from here. Like this page presents a story that actually doesn't happen in new X-Men. And that's the genius of new X-Men. Like here is a villain. Here is someone who's arrived to destroy a marriage, to destroy the team, but it's more complicated than that. That's what's exciting. Yes. Let's now launch ourselves all the way to issue 131 where Scott is with Logan in the X-Jet hovering over Paris, and out of nowhere, Emma psychically connects and interrupts Scott's thoughts, which shows that their psychic rapport is open. She is welcome to walk into his brain whenever she wants. Yeah, which was a huge deal back in the Dark Phoenix Saga days when we had a long conversation about the psychic rapport and we've incorporated the psychic rapport into every episode that we do. Like, that is a significant bond. And to see Emma and Scott share something like that now... I mean, that's that. Now you're like, okay, this is trouble in paradise, everyone. But I think psychic rapport for Scott and Jean was meaningful because they made it meaningful. Mm-hmm. Jean has a strong sense of like boundaries of like, I'm not just going to walk into your head whenever I want. And so by Scott consenting to open the psychic rapport, that was like a deepening of their intimacy, a leveling up. Yes. Which is why when you see Emma and Scott share something similar, you go, oh. Yeah, yeah. But I think also one of Emma's tactics is she's actively trying to trivialize what it means to share a thought, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. as they become closer and um, the thoughts that they share become more risque. Sexualized. Sexualized. It's Scott, not an affair. This is just a psychic thing. We're just sharing this a thought. This is therapy. What's a thought? Oh, yeah. This is therapy. Do I, Lisa Gutlickson, believe that sex therapy can be a thing? Yes, I do. That's not That's not Emma's intention. Later in this issue, we have two instances where X-Men are just giving each other unsolicited advice. So the first scene is Hank with Emma. And Hank says, oh, by the way... Don't mess with Scott and Jean's marriage. <laughs> it's undignified, and Jean will kill you. It's not just advice, Lisa. That's a warning. warning. Right, right. In most cases, when someone says, don't mess with her man, she'll kill you, it's like a like a colloquialism. It's like a, like a, yeah. a hyperbole. This is a reality. This is this a reality. A possibility. I think it's also worth noting that in the context of X-Men continuity, at one point, Hank 
had serious feelings for Gene. Who hasn't? Well, that's true. The that's team, true. when it started, was very small, and, <laughs> you know, she was the one babe in the team. And to that point, Lisa, like, the next bit of unsolicited advice is from Logan to Scott, who definitely has feelings for Gene, which we explored in our What If Wedding Anniversary episode. Ooh, link in the show notes? Maybe. The way Logan starts the conversation is, like, you know, this is the first time you and Jeannie have been together in quite a while. You two should talk more. <laughs> and Emma is on Cerebra tapping in. So she's listening to the whole thing. And Scott mentions, like, I was in the air most of the time. We didn't have any opportunity to talk, which when your wife is psychic, you have every opportunity to talk. So maybe, like, but... Conversation goes two it's ways. Evasive. Anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what Logan says is all I'm saying, man's got to mow his own lawn. <laughs> and um, what do you think that means? Man's got to. He's got to service his lady. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to get in there. That's you got to do to Gene what I can. <laughs> That's a complicated metaphor because it's just like uh, he's saying that uh, Gene's a house. You know, Gene is property. Gene's not property. But, like, a man's got to take care of his business. That's what, that's what Logan is saying. And Emma comes in and says directly, like, don't listen to him. Right? Don't take that advice. Don't take care of your relationship. Allow me to distract you with some therapy. And she takes him into this little fantasy. Yeah, ejects him from the plane. And he thinks he's falling to his death. Right. So anybody who's ever read uh, a like a dating guide or anything like knows that if your date involves some kind of adrenaline rush, like, you know, like uh, if you've ever watched like The Bachelor, they're always like skydiving or whatever. They're doing something thrilling to up that adrenaline because when you are adrenalized, that strengthens attraction because it makes you think in your lizard brain, like, we've really gone through something I together. I about that through the Speed franchise. Yeah. Because Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, they went through this incredible event on this bus. They hooked up at the end. But when that bus event was over, they couldn't make that relationship work in the sequel. And Keanu Reeves was out. Brad doesn't need relationship books because he has Keanu. That's right. We have to have... We somehow we have to have Keanu be one of our love experts. Right? Oh, we could maybe do it. Oh, as a love expert. Yeah. I, I was thinking we could explore him through the Berserker comics. Oh yeah. Has Keanu done a memoir or anything? Or a self help book? Yeah, we can. If he has, we're gonna use it. Yeah. As Emma is creating this fantasy of them jumping out of an airplane, she's underscoring how they are not actually jumping out out of an airplane. She's faking the whole thing. Like, feel the wind? I added that wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's setting up what the, the next thing, the next part of the dream. And Scott's suspicious of her the whole time. So he, he goes like, hey, I'm just looking for some guidance. I'm just looking for therapy here. And she says, and that's what we're, that's what we're doing. You just have to trust me. And Scott replies like, I've heard that before. Why can't you just be straight with me? Why can't everyone just be straight with me? And Emma's response is because we live in a bendy world. Mm -hmm. That is also her trying to, you know, create a scenario in which 
the thing that's going to happen next happens. Yeah. So there, you know, like, it's they, morally complicated, Scott. Yeah, but I think like what Scott is saying by saying, "Why can't everyone be straight with me?" is that he thinks he knows what everyone else is thinking. I think he th- he wants people to say to him like, "Gene doesn't love you anymore. You're not a valued member of the team anymore." We don't really need you anymore. He wants people to confirm his fears. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the other important element that happens in this parachuting sequence is it's the first time where Emma expresses to Scott that horrible things have happened to her as well. Yes. You know, Scott was possessed by Apocalypse. Emma has had multiple sets of students die on her get killed on her watch she has murdered her sister recently you know she wants to connect to scott through her horrible past as well these are broken people and that's the thing that i don't think i truly understood Mm. the last time we talked about these issues and the reason that emma might be sharing that right now is complicated because i feel like It could be part of her manipulation, like vulnerability for vulnerability. Like, I'm going to tell you something vulnerable about me so that you'll tell me something vulnerable about you. But it could be genuine, too. Like, this could be the this could be the point where things are turning emotionally for her, where she is engaging in a way that she did not anticipate. Exactly. So let's pause for a moment and let's speculate on what we think Emma's love languages could be. Okay, I'm sure you have an answer already, but let me like just think it through real quick before sure. you get to it. Uh, so acts of service, quality time, physical touch, gifts, and words of affirmation. Uh, we've said that Scott is acts of service. Gene is quality time. Could Emma also be quality time? I think maybe. So if we're talking about like, She's sharing a vulnerability right now to share a vulnerability with Scott. And 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 she's consuming a lot of time from Scott right now. Mm-hmm. And they're sharing a lot of time. And, and she's starting to dig it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's a very strong possibility. I also go like maybe she could also be acts of service because she is like she did go into therapy she has wanted to try to be a teacher i was thinking about words of affirmation and how it's important to her the way that like the stepford cuckoos look up to her and what they say about her Mm -hmm. right we see that later on when the riot happens but i think her relationship with the cuckoos also tip her towards acts of service Mm. where like she wants their help. She, their relationship is one of help. Mm. She helps them. They help her. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so like like I said, it's, like, not clear. She might be dual just like Jean, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It could be quality time and acts of service. Yeah. I, 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 again, I don't know. I, I've... I'm feeling, right now, I'm feeling quality time. Yeah, because she love languages herself. Like, she, like she ends up, like... Being in love with Scott. And when this psychic rapport fantasy sequence then tumbles into the bedroom, this conversation that we get between Scott and Emma, this feels like more than a manipulation on Emma's part. We do have like this interstitial of (laughs) Logan 
noticing that Scott is like daydreaming or is like kind of out of it. Do you think Logan's suspecting that he's off somewhere with Emma? I think, well, I mean, clearly what Scott and Emma are tumbling into is like an open secret. Like people know that Emma is after Scott. knows something's going on. Logan knows something's going on. But like... The Stepford Cuckoos know that something's going on. But they're both dancing in this area of plausible deniability. And so I think that... And the accusation of like, are you in... Are you um, having an affair in your brain right now? Is like a super serious one. Yeah. So I think like... Yes, Logan does strongly suspect, but he would never say anything because of the plausible deniability factor, which is where Emma thrives. And in this sequence, I think Emma does get to some truth that is helpful. It's helpful for Scott to express it in this moment in their psychic rapport. And she does it by kind of cornering him. So she is trying to like, hey, let's get our sex therapy on. And he's like, this is not what I want. This feels wrong. I feel like I'm betraying Jean. And she goes like, everyone's so afraid of Jean because we've all seen Jean's temper and it's terrifying. But you know what we've never seen? We've never seen Scott Summers' temper. It could be anything. It could be enormous. People should be afraid of you. Yes. And she says, like, are you afraid you'll blow Jean to smithereens when you tell her you don't love her anymore? That the conditionality of their love. And Scott replies, I'll always love her under, like, subtext. My love is unconditional, but like we've changed so much and, you know, everything's changed. And then he says, like, I used to be special. I tried to be. I used to think. I used to think I was special. I tried to be a good husband, but underneath all the lies and the acting, I'm just like everyone else. So what he's saying is. Jean could blow me to smithereens because she's special. I'm not special. I've been posturing, and underneath it all, I'm not really an Omega I'm level just mutant. Just a fragile little boy. Exactly. And and Emma dismisses it by saying, like, oh please, you've been possessed by an evil spirit. Get over yourself. Yeah, like you're more powerful than you give yourself credit for. But I think it is healthy for him to say those things, to, to say those fears out loud. Now, you know, I think if that he wanted the- to have a relationship with Gene, he should say these things to Gene. He should find a way to say these things to Gene's. But for a variety of different reasons, he cannot. And so Emma's there to receive all his insecurities. So his insecurities are the crux of why he doesn't want to be with Jean in this moment. But the problem with their relationship is not that they're not communicating. That's just a symptom. The problem that Scott is dealing with in their relationship is his lack of sense of worthiness. Self-loathing. Self-loathing. He feels that he's not worthy of Jean. And I think he thinks he's not actually 
worthy of leading the X-Men. I think he thinks he's worthy of Emma. But well, because that, well Emma That's the gross thing, yes. right? Like she's ugly too. She's ugly like me. Right. And that's what's so awful and tragic about the Scott Jean Emma thing. Right. So he's had this huge revelation. Emma undercuts it by calling what he's saying, you know, blah, 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 right? You're possessed by a demon. You've seen some dark corners of yourself, blah, blah, blah. When are you going to surprise me with what your problem is? Yeah, you're boring. Right, exactly the thing that he is afraid is true. And so she goes like, when are you just going to admit like your relationship is over what do I need to do? Dress up as Jean? Is that what you need to? Is that what we need to do? And then, um, yeah. and then it goes back to Scott being like, "This isn't really therapy. This feels wrong." And he says, "He says, is this still telepathic therapy, Emma? Are we having some kind of weird affair now?" And the scene ends there. Like, what's the next sentence? Who says what? You just have to flip two pages. Emma speaks next and she's she's wearing Jean's costume and she's saying, I'm I'm life incarnate. I've been possessed. How about you, darling? And he says, sure, Jean, why not? And he's taking off his jacket. I mean, so <laughs> he knows he's now confirmed it is, in fact, an affair. And We're his answer there. to that is why not? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's such a hard scene to read uh, but again like the way I look at it now is that like I'm not justifying anything that's the thing about the Scott and Emma relationship like you know it's not a good thing or a bad thing it's a thing that happens right now I'm working hard to empathize mm -hmm. to, to understand why it happens and when you get to this sequence and if you are like like old Brad, if you're if you're holding on to the pure love affair, the the one true love that was Scott Summers and Jean Grey, this sequence is painful. Mm -hmm. But it being painful is okay, you know, because it is sad. These people are hurting, and I I, I don't just empathize; I sympathize mm -hmm. with the hurt that you're experiencing. This scene. Even if it is like that last panel of sure, Gene, why not? And the expression that Scott has on his face. I mean, it's just such a, it's just so sad, but it, but it just is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the complicity. Like Scott has full knowledge and has consented to everything that's, that's happening. So we can't just go like, well, Emma tricked him, right? Cause he knew the whole time. So let's go ahead and jump to issue 134. Things are brewing on the Xavier campus. Uh, Kid Omega, Quentin Choir, is stirring up trouble. And the Stepford Cuckoos are coming to Emma Frost with some thoughts. The Stepford Cuckoos have been feeling really deprioritized by Emma as of late. And they come to her with their concerns about open day and like going like, we would like to take care of this Quentin Choir situation because we've worked so hard for this event. And Emma is like, 
I don't think that's really important. I think that you're just like, he's your biggest competition at the school. And But personally, I don't think it's anything to worry about. And they're not happy to hear that. And Emma's wrong. It is something to worry about. Yes. And it hasn't been revealed yet that there is a little bit of a civil war brewing within the Stepford Cuckoos. There's an outside influence happening there that's not Emma. And when they feel deprioritized, they start their attack on Scott and Emma, passive aggressively mentioning Mrs. Summers. And so we're at this point where the core team is so myopic, so damaged that they can't see what's happening around them. They cannot see that all these other elements are turning on the X-Men and it's going to result in the riot. And that's just the beginning. It's going to result in an apocalypse, but we got to wait to the next volume for that. They're basically the Jedi Council from The Phantom Menace. <laughs> this comes up whenever we're talking about the X-Men. Like, I think part of the problem is there is no place to go. There's no outside community where they can blow off their anxiety and sort things out for themselves. Like, it makes me think about the Bowens family systems theory, which we talked about with Dick and Babs, like, where when you have a closed community of people where everyone is maxed out and overwhelmed, there has to be some other place to absorb some of that negative energy. But instead, when they get overwhelmed, the only option that Emma has or Scott has or Jean has is to just disassociate and cut themselves off from the unit. And and I think like when you disassociate from the problems in your life, you also have to disassociate from your other the other stuff that's going on. It's all it's it's just becomes impossible. You need connection outside of your family. You need connection outside of your friends. You need connection outside of your work. You can't like you can't be doing all the stuff all together all the time. And you also need time. You also need time to process your problems. Otherwise, they're just kind of uh, they're just kind of like building up. They're just kind of, they're just creating like this scent powder keg. Yeah, or I, I'm thinking like a sediment of resentment that is like calcifying to the point where it's like they can't make any moves. So later, Professor Xavier calls everyone to his office to discuss what to do about Quentin Choir. And Scott goes like, we have to take some of the autonomy away from the students. The students are getting too much freedom and we really need to crack down on this because it's going to get out of control. And Emma immediately backs Scott with a lot of enthusiasm yeah. And then Logan yeah. goes like, we can't be, we can't be taking away these students' liberty. They're already powerful. They need to feel like they can make their own decisions. And then Gene backs Logan and says like, I'm really busy here in Hong Kong, but the second I get back, 
I can take care of it. Yeah, yeah. And and they basically side with Jean because she is Jean. Like, that's where the group goes. And Emma seeing that, that's when she takes the opportunity to introduce them to the concept of kick and how this mutant drug is infecting everyone at the school. And how tremendously helpful that is. So if we're thinking about Scott and his love language being acts of service, Emma is really showing up for the team in this scene. She's being extremely helpful and she's also directly helping Scott by supporting his argument. Meanwhile, Jean is practically silent other than saying like, I agree with Logan, I'm coming back from Hong Kong. She doesn't speak. So like to Scott, it looks like Emma is putting a tremendous amount of love into that meeting by being so helpful. And Jean is not bringing any love to the table. Jumping to issue 136, which is the issue in which the riot finally pops off on the final page with Quentin Quire. But before that, we have a juicy moment between Scott and Emma. A juicy moment that reveals that both of them are being way less careful and way (laughs) less considerate of everyone around them. So Emma's about to get in the car with the Cuckoos, Hank, and Professor Xavier, and the Cuckoos are clearly very tense. Opening day is right around the corner. They've put so much work into it, and they are certain that Quentin Choir is going to ruin it. And Quinn Choir is like marking the school with the Omega Gang uh, graffiti. So when the girls say out loud in front of Professor Xavier, like Quentin Choir plans to ruin Open Day, Xavier responds immediately. And Xavier's like, oh, we should probably do something about this. Where is Quentin Choir? Emma, did he show up to your precognition class? And Emma is just staring off into space. And she says, please forgive me, girls, Charles, miles away. Cut to the next page, first panel, psychic rapport, making out with Scott Summers. Scott Summers is in some some sort of ex-copter with Zorn, and Zorn's like, uh, Scott, uh, are you there? And he's like, huh, huh, what, huh? But imagine how the Stepford Cuckoos feel when they've been trying to get Emma's help with this situation this whole time, And it just takes one second with Professor Xavier, and he goes, I'm alarmed. We need to get this taken care of. So they're feeling like a little gaslit by Emma Frost saying, like, this this is not a big deal when they have it justified by the headmaster of the school. This is a big deal. And actually, you are a group of people we should put our trust in more often. And if the Cuckoos had gotten with Xavier earlier, maybe things would have gone a whole lot differently because this comment comes a little too late because the very next thing that happens to the professor is he gets a bat aside the head from Kid Omega. Yeah, but Emma, she has made the Stepford Cuckoos depend on her completely as a mentor. And she's presented herself with, girls, you can come to me with anything. Um, I'm always going to be there for you. You guys are the most powerful people in the school. And now all of a sudden they're treated by their mentor as if they don't know their minds, what they think does not matter, and what they feel is a big deal is not a big deal. Yeah, so they're ultimately going to reject 
Emma. And she's at this point where she thinks she is building herself back up after a long string of catastrophes and failings. And when this relationship breaks down, it, I mean, it really plummets her to a low point. You know, it reduces her to a low point that she thinks is on the same plateau as Scott, or she sees herself on the same plateau as Scott, ultimately. Also, they are a huge source of love for her. They, a lot of her love tank filling comes from these girls. Maybe she is an acts of service mm. because like the second they reject her, she starts seeking that love elsewhere. And it also makes her even more dependent on Scott. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but I think you could also call that quality time, right? Right. I mean, the oh, quality yeah. time that she was getting with the Stepford Cuckoos. She will just have to find quality time with somebody else. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. In my memory, the riot at Xavier's was this long arc that went over many mm. issues. But in actuality, it's really only one issue, 137, one punishing, brutal, horrifying issue that begins with Emma, you know, strutting her stuff, saying, like, I got this. Yeah, she's try she tries to give the Stepford Cuckoos a pep talk and says, like, I understand from my experience exactly what's happening. You know, students, since I've been teaching, students have changed so much. Like, my students at my school, they were zealots and they were enthusiastic and they were wild and imaginative and passionate. And students aren't just like that anymore. And then Esme goes, yeah, but didn't all of your other students die? Yeah, and one of the other cuckoos goes like, Esme, Esme, no. she's just <gasps> trying to inspire us. Right. I feel like Emma tries to suppress the negative and she tries to make her history one of triumph. And Esme just cuts her off at the knees saying like every experience that you ever had is invalid because of the tragedy that happened. And that is very destabilizing for Emma. Yeah, and Esme is the weapon here. She is the snake in the grass. She is being manipulated by a nefarious outside presence. And she's on the attack against Emma and the X-Men. And she's on the attack on the cuckoos. Yeah, but it only takes one bad cuckoo. Because the cuckoos are already shattered. They're already feeling like they've lost their mentor and they've lost direction. So it looks like Sophie takes charge of the cuckoos and she's like, look, I'm going to go put on Cerebra and together we're going to fix this situation. She also takes some kick. Yeah, she takes some kick. And we, we learn in later issues that it's Esme who psychically encourages Sophie to take this position. A position that ultimately kills Sophie. It stops the riot, but Sophie's dead. Scott also tries to take a position of power and dominate the situation. You know, he fires some optic blasts against Quentin Quire, but just punching a dude with your eye beams is not enough in this situation. Yeah, like it, the whole thing is like so chaotic and I can't imagine being as powerful as Scott is, but fighting someone he technically shouldn't and can't hurt. And he's put into submission more or less immediately by Tattoo, who puts her little like little hand through his head. And yeah, she like, does that kitty pride phasing yeah, thing. Yeah, where if I solidify, you're dead. And then Emma comes to the rescue and does that to Tattoo. Right, which I think underscores two things. 
if Emma Frost is aware of anything, it is of Scott. Like, her eyes are on Scott all of the time. And then also, Scott's love language is acts of service. She just saved his flippin' life, like, boner town. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I wonder, like, is it boner town? Or does it highlight his, you know, lack of power around all ex-people? Perhaps it's, yeah, a little bit emasculating. Yeah, and, and he is allowed to be distracted almost immediately because Redneck lights Glob on fire and Glob goes on an attack and tries to kill all those humans in the van. So Henry, Zorn, and Scott can turn their attention to that problem while the Stepford Cuckoos and Emma, well, really just the Stepford Cuckoos, take out Quentin Quire. Scott Fett spends a ton of time in a vehicle in this arc, which to me is like symbolic. Like he's in his own little bubble for this entire story. Issue 138 is basically the aftermath of the riot. It is the issue in which Emma is sort of fired by the Stepford Cuckoos. Yeah, she gathers them in the Rose Garden to propose making a shrine to Sophie And they essentially say, you know what? After the prize giving, we're going to go to Switzerland and learn from another telepath, Madame Lafarge. And Emma is shocked and tries to to like go like, what what are you saying? And, And they say, people like you are a danger to impressionable children, Miss Frost. Goodbye. And Emma is like, I love teaching teaching is my life and they say like if you love them so much why do you let them die all of the time you silly old woman (laughs) turning that knife and then the final blow that they ultimately give towards emma is that they alert gene that emma and scott are having a psychic affair they let the cat out of the bag but before gene can make it back and set fire to the place Scott goes to Emma and says, like, hey, I'm really in a place where I have to make a decision, which I think is a really telling thing to say, where, like, the whole idea of of uh, leaving Gene has been, like, up in the air at this point. He was neither in nor out. He doesn't realize what a tremendously low place Emma is in at the moment. She's back in the Rose Garden, and this was supposed to be the place for Sophie's shrine, and instead it was the place where her family, the Stepford Cuckoos, rejected her. And she's she's tried to, like, fill the void. She tried to make Angel her mentee, but, like, nothing is really working. And when, when Scott finds her, she looks like she's crying, but she tells him, like, I was checking my nose for cracks. It's never been right since it was broken by that awful man. Like, so she's literally like kind of like feeling her flaws in that moment. But Scott is like, I have to pull this Band-Aid off. I have to break it off with Emma because I'm betraying my wife. And Emma won't hear it. And so she goes back to those same arguments we've heard before. Like, they're just thoughts. You know, like, yeah, you had this demon. I mean, she says to him, we can just have some fun. I need some fun. I need escape. And he cannot deny that she is 
breaking in front of him. And this is what he's been craving, right? He wants someone to take care of. Mm -hmm. And he cannot take care of Gene because he perceives Gene as too powerful. He feels like he's the submissive in that role. And he's probably also the submissive in Emma's in his relationship with Emma too a lot of the times, but not here, not in this moment. So when she's at this low point, he cannot deny the moment. He cannot say like, Okay, we gotta break this off. No, no. Here's my chance. Here's my chance to be the leader. To be of service. And we're rapidly approaching the scene that I think many people come to this arc for, but I don't want to escape this garden just yet because rereading this scene, I have no ill will towards them the way that I did in the past. They're both so pitiful they're both so understandable i feel sorry for them i recognize the pain that they're in i connect to the pain that they're in and i'm i i i want the best for them and i'm not saying that i approve of the decisions that were made i just recognize this as a romantic tragedy mm. you can't be mad at them anymore because they didn't betray you. They just betrayed themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When Scott said, I have to make a decision, I think it shows that he really did fall for Emma's thing of like, they're just thoughts. It's not like he believed that with his heart, but he believed that he could make that argument I mean, to he's, Gene. Yeah, he's trying like he's like, oh, this is something I can rationalize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was like treating the inside of his head where he was having this affair with Emma as like Schrodinger's box. Right. Inside my head, I am with Gene. I'm still married with Gene in the world, but inside my head, let's experiment with what it would be like to break up with Gene. So as they go into this psychic rapport sex scene in this issue, he he's resistant. He's like, you know, I got to make a decision. This is not me. I am not like this. He's never felt like it was right. And Emma is still trying to do the thing like these are just thoughts. She's, she's still trying to latch on to like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. But... The problem now is that Jean is on her way. She is physically and psychically storming towards their bedroom. Yeah, I think it's also, we should point out that this is the first time for us that we've seen Emma go full Jean. Where she has red hair, as like her whole face looks like Jean. Right, and I think that Emma is losing herself. I think that she is willing to sacrifice her entire identity to have this moment of escape. And, but she's like, when she puts on the red hair, you know, she says to Scott, is this really how you wish it was with Jean? Oh, Scott, you're making me lose control. Mm -hmm. I'm going to explode with my passion and fry the stars, darling. He like, she's putting on the wig and she's mad about it. Yeah. You know, like, so it, it's not that she's fully becoming Gene for Scott. He, she's, she's doing this as a way of pulling him away from Gene. Yeah. Like, like, um, it feels like a negotiation. Like, okay, I want to 
have sex with you right now and him saying like I don't want to well what if I dress up like Jean what if I turn my face into Jean what if I turn my hair into Jean what if I make your your Jean fantasy come true then will you be with me like to me like she is asserting herself like she is angry but she's also showing that that she's willing to give pieces of herself away in order to not feel what she's feeling anymore, in order to just escape. And think what that means to Scott. Like, going back to his original thesis statement sitting on that lawn chair, like, Jean won't even put on a corset for me. And here is Emma doing the literal most. So in this sequence, do you feel like this is Scott fully committing to the affair or fully committing to a relationship with Emma? Oh, no, I think he's still in that nebulous place. And, and like, to me, it's because of his reaction to when Gene shows up. He starts doing, like, the thing, the, like, it's just thoughts, you know? Yeah, it would be interesting to know what would happen if Gene didn't bust in at this moment, if his psychic affair wasn't exposed. I I mean, would would he ever break up with Gene on his own? Would he ever go to Gene and go like, things are not working out? Or would it always require Gene to go to discover the deception? I think, I think that Gene's timing was pretty darn good because yeah. <laughs> like he, in that Rose Garden, he was willing, he was making his last stand. Like this is over. I don't like doing this. Yeah, And Emma's argument was persuasive enough to yeah. get him out of his, you know, yeah. super suit. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think that his resolve would have just gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. And I don't think he ever would have cut it off on his own. But I also don't think that he, I like, I think he needed to be exposed. I, I mean, and to your point, you know, oh, it's just thoughts, it's just thoughts, it's just thoughts. I mean, it's a pretty, he's immediately reduced to a very cowardly position. Right. Um, and if we look at those, if we look at the first page the, the where Jean busts down the door, the final page of that issue, and she says, let me guess, you can explain. Oof. And the Frank Quietly page is very different from the Phil Jimenez page that opens issue 139. On the Frank Quietly page, we see Emma in, you know, full uh, Jean Grey cosplay, uh, you know, with a deep, deep V exposed. But she's also pulling the blanket up to cover herself. Like, mm -hmm. Jean is here. Oh, she could not see me as her. This is no good. And Jean's expression is stern, angry, but like still. Yeah, right? really menacing. We don't actually get to see what the expressions are of Scott and Emma because they're turned toward the door. But when we turn the page on issue 139 with the Phil Jimenez, we see now Scott is like, gah! Like he's got a very like Gomer Pyle uh, shock look on his face. And now Jean is no longer still. She is active and coming at them. And Emma's expression is very different. Her hair is starting to return to the Emma hair color. Uh, the deep V of exposed bosom is gone. And she looks 
She's smirking. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I see it as her returning to her manipulator mode. Yes. Right? Like, she's been caught, and now it's time to, like, mess things up. This is one of the outcomes she wanted. She wanted... Jean Grey furious at her. And now with them caught, she has to justify her actions or she has to play the role that got her here. Yeah, she's playing the villain. And I think that she was also in a nebulous place with Scott when they were together. And I think like, just like Scott was still married to Jean outside of his head, Emma was still pulling off her master plan outside of her head. Yeah, and... This issue and how it kind of just turns into a psychic cat fight is a little disappointing in some ways. The fact that Scott is thrown out of the argument, Gene's like, you're not a part of this right now. I'm going to destroy Emma Frost. I think that her throwing him out of the room is a huge indicator of where their marriage is at right now. She doesn't see Scott as a person with any autonomy. Throwing him out of the room is completely emasculating to him. And I think that it justifies him thinking that everybody thinks that he's powerless. Gene and Scott have been so distant, like physically distant. Talking about like who's not mowing their lawn. (laughs) What, Jean? Jean's not mowing the lawn? Jean's not taking care of her marriage. She's not putting the effort into connecting. Where they are right now is they're they're at a breaking point, and they know it, and they can't look at each other. Yeah, and Jean knows it. Because I think that... I think that she feels like if she confronted Scott right away, he would throw it back in her face in a way that would make her feel complicit, like she screwed up their marriage. And this issue does prove Hank's warning to Emma. You know, she will burn you down. She does go full Phoenix in a splash page in this issue and decimates Emma's psyche by simply exposing her trauma, which is awful. This is such a brutal, ugly issue. But it does give us a lot of valuable insight into Emma's love languages and why she might be interacting with Scott the way that she is. Like, why she's seeking love in this way. Mm, Like that scene with the dad, with the whole family, when the dad is like, which sibling's gonna get the fortune? It's you, Emma. Right. So, like, I'm thinking back to you saying that Emma Frost's love language is quality time. Mm -hmm. I think you might be right. Mm. So, like, her father was, like, Mm. a distant and neglectful parent who was constantly antagonizing (laughs) Uh uh his uh kids So she built up all of this resentment against him. And then he says, oh, I was being a terrible dad as a test. And Emma... I was neglecting you on purpose. Yes. And the test you passed, you are the heir to my fortune. And Emma goes like, no, thank you. I would have rather had a present father. And I don't need your fortune because I am worthy of making my own fortune. And then we see her going on to her path with with the Hellfire Club and changing parts of her identity in order to get the outcome that she wants. 
revenge on daddy. Yeah. It's a little basic. It's a little cliche. But at the same time, like, we see her having the intuition to become the person that other people think that they need in order to manipulate them. So she goes to the Hellfire Club. She sees that they seem to need, like, some kind of dominatrix ice queen individual and that's the way that she can manipulate them so she becomes that person just like she becomes the gene she needs to be to manipulate scott my interpretation is that you know she goes to the hellfire club and she's creating a reliance Mm -hmm. they need her in this way to thrive when she becomes a teacher you know she changes herself to become the essential teacher at all of these schools. I think she's just using control as a substitute for love. Like, if I'm not a lovable person to you, then I will be the person who controls you. This psychic attack from Jean is so cruel. She is exposing all these wounds just so she can get to the truth of what happened in Hong Kong between Scott and Emma. Did they get physical? Did they? Woo! Jean screams at her, stop hiding from me. Emma, I'll make you relive the life of every single child you've allowed to die. Turn the page and we get a splash of all the corpses that lie behind Emma Frost. And she, I mean, she wins the fight. Like, like uh, she can't, she has to give up the truth of Hong Kong and she starts to, but then that's when Scott Summers finally work, you know, he revs up his optic blasts and busts down the door. And he's like, look, if you want to know what happened in Hong Kong, leave Emma alone. Take it from me. And what Jean sees is that in Hong Kong, Emma goes, please have sex with me. And Scott goes, no, thank you. I'm a happily married. Well, I don't know if happily. I'm a married man and I'm taking my celibacy only Jean very seriously. (laughs) And like, guess what? Jean's not impressed. Is having sex psychically cheating or not. Like, to even Gene, it's a gray area. Scott this whole time has just been saying, it's just thoughts, it's just thoughts, it's just thoughts. He's been waiting for this moment. And Gene kind of treats them as just thoughts because, like, what she wants to know is, like, did they go to bone zone? Because that would mean that that's the real thing. She's treating it like that's the real thing. But we've been saying that's not the real thing. And, and he and he expects when he when he shows her Hong Kong, he expects a pat on the back, like "good going, guy, you didn't do it." But then Jean is still her hair is still on little. Yeah, I mean, like fire. I mean, we don't know. Like what immediately happens after Jean looks into Scott and sees that they did not, in fact, go to Bone Zone in Hong Kong. Scott's reaction to "Hey, you've got it" is he runs. He, yeah. just, he doesn't say anything. You now have the information. I'm out of here. And he gets on Wolverine's bike and drives away. And we don't see him again for the rest of these issues. You're right that Jean is unimpressed. You know, she's got the fiery hair because there is no satisfaction in knowing that they didn't physically do it. And it's at this moment where she knows and everyone knows that the psychic rapport affair was a legit affair. That was the real stuff. 
I relate to Jean in that moment. Not because I think that you've been having psychic affairs without <laughs> me, but like I know what it feels like to be angry and to think that like, oh, just this one thing, this one piece of knowledge or this one admission or just this one, th- like if, if I get this one thing out of this situation, out of my partner, I'll be satisfied. And then you get that one thing. And you're not. And, and you find that it's not actually resolved at all. And you are still frustrated and you are still lashing out. And I think like that also hurts Scott's feelings because, you know, Scott was saying like, like the piece of information that you wanted, I had. The whole look, time. The whole time. And look, I'm willing to give it to you. And he gives it to her and he thinks this will make her not mad anymore. And she's still mad. And that feels like a betrayal to him. Maybe, maybe. And I say that because we don't get any actual dialogue after the memory of Hong Kong is exposed. Scott's on the run and gone. And the way I see that is that he cannot face what he has done. Mm. And the truth that is now not only out there between Gene, Emma, and Scott, but the entire school, or at least the core team. I think, like, he thought he was going to get permission to not be ashamed, and he didn't get that permission, and he's ashamed. It's and that's possible. Why he's running away. It's possible. It's possible. It's just that we don't, we don't get, we don't get any of that. Right. We don't get, we don't get any of that in this issue. Emma is, of course absolutely wrecked and she goes off to cry and be alone and Logan comes after her to check in on her and I think he gets some pretty valuable admissions from her in this yeah moment. yeah some significant uh relationship information is finally revealed in like one word balloon yeah uh you know Logan basically says like nice try you know but you should have known better to get between Gene and Slim Uh, But still, nice try. And Emma says, I know. I know he lies beside her at night without touching her. I know she sees what he's thinking and despises him for his weakness. I know she's so pure and their love is so special, Logan. So we, like, I think we take that at face value, right? Like, Jean, at this point, is despising her husband for the dark crap in his head. But also that their love is something that is separate from From that that complicated emotion. She says that she's seen Gene and Scott's love, and it is so pure, and it is special. But then she admits to Logan that she also has a love for Scott, and that it is something... By comparison, that is less pure and less special. But Jean knows it too. Yeah. Jean knows that Emma loves Scott, and Jean knows that Scott loves Emma. And I think the word special comes up in these issues so many times. Like, Scott's like, I don't feel special. uh, Emma is saying, like, Scott and Jean's love is special. And the problem with having someone like Jean Grey is that her specialness trumps everyone else's. So Compare and despair, Lisa. Exactly. Like, it doesn't seem fair that Jean gets to win in powers, in goodness, and in love. 
I think we can say, though, that she does not get to win in love at the end of these issues. No. And, you know, what you have here at the end of this middle chunk of Grant Morrison's new X-Men is the relationship between Scott, Gene, and Emma fully exposed. We're on the operating table. No, we're on the mortician's table. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out how did this thing die? I think it was smothered. I think it was smothered by Gene's specialness. I also think it's about communication. I also feel like none of these people, when they got to these moments of despair, could chat with each other about this awful thing that is bubbling in between them. Like Scott couldn't talk to Gene. Gene couldn't talk to Scott. Because everything that Gene says trumps everybody else, right? Because she knows everything that everybody knows. She can outpower anybody. So in pretty much every column of her life, what she says goes. And like the first thing that Emma says in their argument is like, you present yourself as this pacifist, but you are, in fact, a bully. And I think that's true. I don't know. Like, I don't feel 100% comfortable blaming Jean. I'm not blaming Jean for, her, for Scott's infidelity. I'm blaming Jean for not being curious about what's happening to Scott. Well, she's not, because she's not curious because she knows. That's the problem. She looked into Scott, saw what Scott was thinking, and started to despise him, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's not her fault. That's not even really his fault. Like, <sighs> I think not trying to resolve it is her fault. I think everyone's just, to blame. I think everyone's to blame. I think she was just pretending like it wasn't a problem. You know, I th I think that she was just deprioritizing deprioritizing the marriage because she doesn't respect Scott. Like Scott should be able to figure this out on his own. Just like I figured out the Phoenix uh, Force on my own. Doesn't respect Scott is also just horrified by what she's seeing in her husband. Like right. what a curse it is to be able to dip into your partner's brain and see their rogue, <laughs> you know, their rogue infidelities, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and when you can dip in and see someone's rogue infidelities and then another person could dip in and, you know, make those rogue infidelities a two way street, like mm -hmm. with Scott and Emma, um, you know, this is going to happen. This right. is going to happen. Like to me, there is a sense of inevitability with where everything goes in Scott, Emma, and Jean. It makes me think about Esther Perel and how she would talk about like how important it is that there are two people in the relationship or like everybody who is in the relationship has a true individuality and the the relationship is a bridge between two people. It's not where two people become one person. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I, at this point, am looking at Scott and Emma's relationship there. You know, this is, this is the beginning of a longer lasting relationship. And it's a dark beginning. Mm -hmm. And can anything grow from such sour soil? And we're going to explore that. And it's kind of crazy to me that five years ago, we ended our conversation on Scott and Gene. You know, we covered them over the course of four episodes. 
the fact that we ended it here with these particular issues is so strange. Yeah, because everything is just so in, in medias rest. Yeah, Like, nothing yeah. is resolved yet. It's super unsatisfying. Like, if we were to stop the conversation here and we weren't going to return to Scott and Emma again, like, it's just not a satisfying conversation. We have to come back to Scott and Emma. Right. But we're getting ahead of ourselves oh, because yeah. <laughs> there's still a couple more issues uh, in this uh, chunk. Um, and this issue itself, like the, the climax of the the battle between Emma and Jean is that we find Emma's corpse, her shattered yeah. diamond body. First she is emotionally shattered, then she is literally shattered. And what we eventually learn, we're going to cover this really quickly. What we eventually learn is that Esme... Under the influence of somebody else, who we won't reveal just yet, uh, killed Emma. Yeah. Used Angel to shoot a diamond bullet into Emma Frost and shatter her. But Emma does not die because this is comics. Yeah, so Jean is actually the one to repair Emma's diamond body using the Phoenix Force. Which I'm sure, like really irritated Hank because he was really <laughs> excited about putting that puzzle together. <laughs> and it and it takes Gene like a, a good 15 minutes to just like, okay. If that, me. if that. But the way that Gene brings Emma back to life is by saying, wake up, Emma. Scott needs you. Significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Gene, Gene passes the baton. Yeah. Like, you know, that. like Gene has now given up on whatever relationship she had with Scott, if she hadn't already done so many, many issues ago. But I think, like, this goes back to when you are a telepath and you're seeing everybody's multiple ideas in their mind, Scott needing Emma can be true, as well as their love being so pure and special is true. And also, Emma's love for Scott though not as special and not as perfect, <laughs> is also true. And it's just like, okay, what's the thought that is in your head that makes you the best person? Right. Like, I think that that's what, what so, Scott and Emma and, and even Jean need to get to. Well, so what Jean has to make the decision of what, does she, what will make her happy. Right. Like, it, is happiness possible with Scott now? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I, we really don't get that answer right here we're still in a nebulous place five years ago when we ended this conversation we asked the question of are scott and gene still a one true pairing mm. and i guess we have to ask that question again and then the second question would be because this is a scott and emma episode are Scott and Emma a one true pairing? Like, I just don't think that we're in a place to even say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, if I were to give Scott and Emma advice from where we're standing right now, like, I don't, even with have Scott going away and not saying exactly why he's leaving, I don't think his escape, his his motivations to escape were necessarily good. I think that, that he escaped because he didn't want to be blamed. I, I think that he escaped because he didn't want to be seen in his shame. But I think, like, Scott needs some valuable Scott time and Emma needs some valuable Emma time. 
Like, I'm not one of those people where it's just like, you can't find love until you are a whole person, until like all of your internal problems are fixed. But I think like, they did start their relationship in an, in a dishonest place. And I think like, if they're, if they're going to come together again and give this relationship a real go, they have to do it from a place of honesty and yeah. honesty going on both sides. Like just because Emma can see all of the thoughts that are in Scott's head, it doesn't mean that she knows what Scott is going to do with all of that information that he's processing. Yeah, yeah. Like the thoughts don't predict a future. Yeah, and right? the and the thoughts don't necessarily represent like the thoughts don't necessarily represent how you feel either. Like you like sometimes like I have an emotion and then I start pointing at things that I think, okay, this could ca have caused that emotion or this have, like, clearly this is the problem when the problem is actually I'm having an emotion and I need to just, I need yeah, to just meta process. Emotions. Yes, uh, yeah, meta emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there is a tsunami of meta emotions happening for all three of these players. I think communication is crucial. I think that they live extraordinary, extreme lives that are just hard to understand from our very non-mutant perspectives. I came to this series this time with a much more open heart for all of the individuals. I feel for all of them. And yeah, so like, you know, can Scott and Jean make it? Should they make it? Can Scott and Emma make it? Should they make it? Like, I, I, I literally just don't think we can even come close to answering that. I can tell you that I feel for everyone involved and I want everyone to live their best lives and find happiness. But they right now are at an extreme low point and they need to crawl their way out of it before any real conversations can happen. I also think that it shouldn't be left unsaid that, like, the X-Men and the Xavier School, all of that is a real toxic environment. Like, it is impossible for them to get any kind of perspective or work-life balance. Like, and, I, and I'm not saying that that can necessarily be fixed. Like, what they're dealing with as heroes and as representatives of the entire mutant community, they have a lot on their shoulders. They're chained to the mission. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, like, finding happiness, finding true satisfaction in that kind of environment is going to be really, really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel, like, so raw after yeah. going through that entire journey yeah, with this Scott is a and tough Emma. One. This is a tough one. And now we're at that place where we go, like, what are our personal takeaways? Like, what have we learned about our relationship from this story? You know, like, again, you know, I can't help but go back to our first conversation about these issues and see the Brad and Lisa as having just too casual of a conversation about it. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. Um, and I think what I'm happy, or what I'm most happy about myself is that I've removed a lot of my judgment over these characters. Yeah. And I, the way I'm approaching th these relationships right now is one of like, 
trying to see them and understand them and and hope for them. And mm-hmm. and so we come to the end of this conversation about Scott and Emma, which again, like I see is just it has to be the beginning of a much larger conversation. And I I'm rooting for them not like i'm rooting for them to be a one true pairing not that i'm rooting for the destruction of scott and gene's relationship because again it's comics we know that scott and gene do get back together at some point you know like there's something funky going on during the crack owen era with all of these people involved and i'd love to take a crack at that at some point um but right now what i'm most satisfied about is how i've been able to remove that judgment and I still like the way that we, Brad and Lisa, use the five love languages. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's interesting to approach Emma from a quality time perspective. To yeah. approach Scott from an act of service perspective. You know, I, I think that's where I have them placed right now. Um, will I keep them there as we continue to talk about them uh, next month? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I think what talking about the love languages does is kind of like cut through some of the noise and go like, but what do they actually want? Like, do they actually, does, does she actually just want quality time with Scott? She doesn't necessarily want like this tumultuous, will they, won't they thing. She just wants the time or, or does Scott want to break up with Jean or does he just want to feel needed by Jean? Mm. Another takeaway that I have from Scott and Emma is to kind of be aware of your nebulous places. Like, I'm not saying, like, you have to make a decision right now. Are you in? Are you out? But, like, go, like... The quicker you can make a decision on something important, (laughs) you should take it. Like, don't drag it out. I don't know. Like, it's weird. It's weird to talk that way about, like, should I have this affair or am I having this affair? But, like, I'm just thinking now in terms of, like, my own life where I have, like, these outstanding things that are, like, you know, like, I don't feel great about this, but I'm just going to kind of, like, not think try to not think about it when I'm not looking, like, directly at it. Yeah. And, like, I think that Scott could have, like, revisited his principles and gone, like... Like, because he says it actively makes him not feel good. So, like, getting to the bottom of, like... Yes. Not, yes. Why does it feel bad? I, I wish Scott had taken a moment earlier on to have a real conversation, a real awful, hard, challenging conversation with Gene before he tiptoed his way into loving Emma. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like, I think it's hard sometimes when you're in the thick of it going like, is this what I think is true or is this my justification? It's just thoughts was his justification, but he did not actually feel that it was true. We've said this many times over the course of this podcast. You'll hit an intense emotion, and that intense emotion uh, blinds you of everything else. Mm -hmm. You think the whole world is this feeling, and that is a dangerous place to be because the decisions you make based on this intense feeling have tremendous ripple effects right so when you have that intense feeling it's best to 
pause, slow down, hit the brakes, think on it a little bit. Yeah. I'm just trying to like relate it to something like that's not an affair. I'm like trying to find <laughs> something that's like slightly lower stakes. Uh -huh. Like, for example, say that there's been a friend that you've just kind of been keeping on the back burner. And we know that that person wants to reach out to you and connect to you, but you've just kind of been avoiding it. Yeah, ghosting, uh, texting. Right, and and when you think about it, it makes you feel bad. Yeah, 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 this is, now, okay, yeah. okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that ghosting that friend isn't an okay thing to do, but it does mean that there's something about that that you're not okay with. And I think that it's just like an individual has to get to the bottom of like, it's almost like the love languages thing. Like, what do I actually want out of ghosting my friend? Do I want my friend to forget that I exist? Or do I want my friend to not know that I'm rejecting them? Or do I know that I don't have the spoons to take care of that friend in the way that they need? Right. A decision. Like, it, it feels best to make a decision. The longer you take not to make a decision, the worse you're going to feel. And could also, you know, spread and spiral uh, into areas you don't want to go. But a decision doesn't necessarily mean an action. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, so you're saying like the decision could be to continue to ghost that person or, because that's best for your mental health or exactly, whatever. Or yeah. just like, you know, like um, prioritize resolving the feeling and then choose the action. Yeah, we're not experts, friends. Yeah. You know, we're working on it. We I know. Like that's like the joy of this podcast is like we're trying to figure these things out as we talk about Scott and Emma. And like how I feel right now talking about this might not be how I feel about it 10 minutes from now. You yeah. Know? Like it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Living is a struggle. Right. One thing I do know for certain. Gary Chapman would not approve of Scott divorcing Gene. <sighs> Whatever. Yeah. We now need to figure out how we're going to cover Scott and Emma in January and announce what's coming up next week on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hey, everyone. It's Kyle Starks, uh, your three-time Eisner-nominated comic creator, your Peacemaker Tries Hard boy, your I Hate This Place boy. Uh, I just want to say how lucky we are to have had uh, comic book couples counseling for all these years to speak out for and to promote uh, the wonderful industry of comics. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for all they've done for me and for other comic creators too. Happy, happy five years. Brad and Lisa, we're so lucky to have you. Uh, let's have five more, let's have 10 more. Uh, thank you again, congratulations. Hello, this is Chris Condon, and I am here to wish a happy fifth anniversary, birthday, whatever you want to call it, to my good friends at the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, or CBCC as we all know it. And let's face it, we all know it. It is a fantastic podcast. Uh, I'm truly thankful for their patronage and their support and it really goes a long way the 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 way that they, they delve into each and every story each issue uh, each character what you're trying to say on each page and each panel in each line of dialogue they truly are the comic book medium's best friends so let's wish a, a happy fifth to brad and lisa cbcc keep going 
keep going strong and you'll be going for another 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe 125 years. We, we don't know. The, the future is not written. Um, unless if you ask Skynet. All right. Um, thank you very much. All right. Um, see you later, Brad and Lisa. Talk to you next arc. We also need to take a moment and thank every artist who called into the CBCC hotline yeah. and left a really loving message for us. Filled our love tank. <sighs> love tank is full. It really does mean everything to us. Uh, thank you so much. Could not have dreamed of that five years ago. Yeah. Also, again, we have to thank our listeners. It is so special that you guys tune in to us every single week. Or just the ones that you're interested in. That's also okay. Yeah, thank you to everyone who has listened, who has subscribed, who has shared an episode on their socials. Uh, I, you know, we would not be doing this still if you were not there. So thank you. We, we would still do it, but we probably wouldn't hit record. <laughs> <laughs> we probably wouldn't share it. Facts. And also, Brad, sweetheart, yeah. I also want to thank you what? for doing this with me for the past five years. This has made for the best five years of our marriage, I think. And I cannot wait to see where we go next. It's just been really special, and I love you. You're welcome. Okay, next <laughs> week. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you, Lisa. I love you. You have made my life so much better than what it was before, certainly. <laughs> and uh, this podcast has been an absolute delight and has honestly, I think, helped us in our relationships. It's been an outlet to discuss things that have helped us through uh, not rough patches. Well, an but, entire pandemic. But, yeah, yeah, through an entire pandemic. And anytime we do have an argument, like I do feel like our arguments have become less painful mm -hmm. because of the conversations that we've been having on this podcast. It hasn't ceased the arguments from happening. I definitely <laughs> feel the loom of all of our love experts over me as I be a trash panda. Well, well yeah, yeah, I, I do too. And, you know, like full disclosure, like we've had a few arguments this week. Um, but I think we get through those arguments because we're able to uh, communicate and yeah. we're able to communicate about them because all we've been doing for the last five years is talking about communicating. And uh, yeah, so thank you, Lisa. Thank you, listeners. Thank you to all of our beautiful patrons who financially yes. support us every month. But most importantly, thank you, Lisa. Okay, I'm going to need you to go back and take out all of the nice things I said about you. I am the master of the edit, and I will not. <laughs> so, Scott and Emma, we will return to them in January, and we are going to finally talk about the climax of Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. So the very next volume, that trade paperback, which is number three, that will be the spine of our conversation in January, which will kickstart a four-episode series of counseling sessions on Scott and Emma, and we have not yet decided what the other three story arcs will be. So if you have opinions on what we should cover, please email us, cbccpodcast at gmail.com, or hit us up on all our socials, CBCC Podcast. We're looking at you, Pat Loika. We're looking at you, 
Karen. We're looking at you, Jackie. Anybody like all of our Dallas? Oh yeah. Dallas is Dallas has thoughts already. He's communicated. Okay, perfect. And we're not going on vacation. We still have many more CBCC episodes in December. Next week, we are going to have a conversation with Joshua Williamson and Tom Riley about Duke. We've read the first issue of Duke. We freaking loved it. I'm shocked that Lisa loved it as much as she did. We're going to talk Joes, 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 Joes. You should also head on over to our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, and read our interview with G.I. Joe, a real American hero creative team, Larry Hama and Chris Mooneyham. That is already up. And then we will have another episode out next week, a conversation with Sarah Meyer about their magnificent memoir, Monstrous, a transracial adoption story from First Second Books. Then it'll be time for our stampies. It's going to be time for us to put our ball gowns on because we have (laughs) an awards show of all of our favorite comics from 2023. If there is a comic that you read that came out this year that you are passionate about and you are afraid we haven't read yet, please send it our way because we are cramming to get in the absolute most comics so we can make the best possible one-two punch supersized episodes for you. These two episodes are always some of the most popular episodes that we do every year. I really look forward to them. And I love that they're now officially called the Stampies. We got it. Trademark that thing. And Brad, also let people know about our gift guide. We are still shopping. That's it is right. the holiday season. Yeah, and we keep adding to our comic book holiday gift guide. Like, Lisa and I love gift guides. We love shopping. But every time we find, like, a supposed comic book gift guide, there's not enough comics on it. Yeah. And we can't let that stand. So our comic book gift guide, link in the show notes, is massive and filled with comic books. Seek it out. And uh, I think it will help you find stuff that you are, might enjoy in your stocking. But but also you'll find some comics for other folks that, that, that they might enjoy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other people are important. We love gift giving. <laughs> and it's one of the five love languages. And maybe it's yeah. yours. Okay, Brad, it's actually getting a little chilly in here. I think I've got to cover up my whore's torso. <laughs> Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I hope that hashtag gets trending. And you can tweet it at me uh, on most social medias. Yeah, tweet at me on all the social medias, <laughs> at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, uh, send them to Aaron Prescott, at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, our show poster, and our fifth Fifth anniversary poster, please send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. And they do have a store and I have links in the show notes to their store. They take commissions, seek them out. They're amazing. They make a great gift. Yeah, they do. But Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. We are everywhere. It's true. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including... Weekly bonus episodes. Oh, we're talking Sandman still. So much Sandman. And Lisa, we're going to have to update that uh, copy because I think Google Podcasts is going away. Oh, no. They're going the way of the Dodo Stitcher. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. 
Look, if you want to talk to us about SEO, we hear you. We get those emails all the time. I'm not interested, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm working on my own SEO, all right? And I can't afford you. Uh, if you, uh, you can also visit the website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com. That's part of the copy. And follow us on all the socials, CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yes, please. It's been a while. Yeah, we are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts. And helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. So are we in year five now? Or are we in year six? How does that work? Is this year five? Or did we just complete year five? No, this is year five, right? Right? This is, no, year five is... Year five is now? So you celebrate Hold a baby's on. birthday, first birthday, after they've lived for a so full year? So 2018 to 2019, that's a year. Yeah. 2019 to 2020 is a year. Yeah. 2020 to 21 is a year. Yes. 2000, what did I say, 21 to 22, that's a year. So we just did 22 to 23? Yeah, so that's yeah, five years. Yeah, so that's years. five years. So, we're, so this is, we're in year six. We're calling this year six. We're now in year six. Let's not ever talk about it again until next anniversary.